Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe. This is Pardon Me, a special show that we do every week about impeachment. And we are going to give you some news this week. We're also going to talk about morality and religion bubbling under the surface of the impeachment debate. We're going to talk about how language and lexicography wind up reflecting some of the words that get used in an impeachment debate like this one. And we're going to introduce a new thing called factoids, which will be voiced by the great Kion Wolf. So all of that is to come, but let's get started right now. So a lot of journalists are doing a lot of terrific reporting and analysis uh, of this story. And one of them who's doing some of the, I I find, most interesting stuff is David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic. He's joining us right now. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. I want to begin with the most recent thing that you wrote, which, boy, it just had all kinds of things in it that I hadn't thought much about And I'm supposed to be thinking about all this stuff. And it is sort of the known unknowns, the unknown knowns, all those Don Rumsfeld things. I mean, just a lot of stuff that we we think of this story as one in which there are fewer reveals because kind of from Jump Street, we had the sort of transcripty kind of thing in which we can hear President Trump saying a lot of the stuff that the whistleblower had brought up. Then he goes out on the White House lawn and he says the rest of it, basically. So we think... Well, all done. It's really just an argument about what this means and how seriously to take it. But you really made a case that there's a bunch of things that we really don't know about. And and I want to have you just run through a few of them anyway. Maybe we should start with this whole question of where did President Trump get the idea that maybe Ukraine and not Russia interfered with the election? We remember from the hearings when Fiona Hill came in and said, some of you kind of tisking. (laughs) these Republican uh, members of Congress. Some of you seem to think that there's something going on with Ukraine, and you should understand that is a product of Russian intelligence. That's something that they are hoping you will believe, and now you do, you fools. That's not a direct quote. But you've asked, where did President Trump get a hold of this? Yeah, and that comment was sort of weird at the time. There was some debate about what she meant by it being Russian propaganda. And then we get a report from the Washington Post this week that says, Trump told people, Putin told me that it was Ukraine and not Russia that was responsible for this hacking. Some sense maybe where it might be coming from, and, and apparently that idea was circulating within the administration, which maybe explains where Fiona Hill got it. Right. I mean, you know, once again, sometimes the answers are more obvious. We, we might think that this is this like really finessed thing that somehow they, they dropped <laughs> this information into the slipstream of information. Well, no, if Putin just said it to Trump. <laughs> right. It's not sophisticated Facebook persuasion. It's just telling Trump this and, and letting it float that way. Now, one of the other things that you bring up, which I actually have thought about, but not in a particularly helpful or constructive way, is what the hell has Rudy Giuliani been doing over there? And particularly with these two associates, this kind of, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, team that he has over there. I mean, there seems to be some kind of pursuit of money. They also seem to be each other's clients in different ways. I mean, what either do we or don't we know about that whole arrangement? 
So we know that. We know that they, he, they were both working for him and also they had hired him. So they were working as translators for him, supposedly. They had hired him to represent them on some issues. That's about the extent of it. At some point a couple weeks ago, I sat down and tried to draw out a map of the connections between Parnas and Fruman and Giuliani and some of these other characters. And what I came up with both didn't really help me understand it and was so complex as to be just like spaghetti. You know, there are all these different places Giuliani is involved. He's not getting paid by Trump. He has been offering contracts to the Ukrainian government, maybe, but it's not clear if he signed any. He's got these guys. What exactly he's doing and where he's getting money for it, I think, is still just something we don't have a great sense for. Although one name we do know, and we know more about it recently, is the name Dimitro Firtash, who is this Ukrainian oligarch. He's under indictment for bribery in the United States. And we do know, I think, via the Southern District of New York, that he deposited $1 million into an account belonging to Svetlana Parnas, the wife of indicted Rudy Giuliani associate Lev Parnas, through a Swiss attorney. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> so, I mean, that that seems like it's something anyway, David. Yeah, and Furtash is one of these characters who's been kind of on the margins of the scandal all along. His name pops up because he's involved in Ukraine and he's he knows some of these people, but his role isn't all that clear. And now we have this $1 million infusion, which gives us a little bit better sense of a concrete connection to him. But again, not what he was wiring that money for, or, you know, Parnas denies this is actually whatever he said, it was it was payment on a loan or something. So we don't, we don't have total clarity on what the money is for or, or why he sent it or what their relationship with him is or what Giuliani's or Trump's or anybody else's is. I mean, there's all kinds of other stuff that uh, you mentioned in your article that are things we will maybe learn someday. Maybe we'll never learn the nature of the calls between Devin Nunes, uh, the ranking uh, Republican member on intelligence and the White House. What were they talking back and forth uh, about? And then, you know, there are these witnesses who you know, I still haven't, I guess, com- or can't be completely ruled out as possible witnesses in the Senate trial. It seems very unlikely. And and among them, you know, obviously Mick Mulvaney, he's already gone on record for an important part of this in that benighted press conference, right, where he basically said, yeah, there's a quid pro quo, get used to it. Yeah, exactly. Get over it, I think. Was get the, over the it, sorry. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, Rick Perry is another one. He went to Ukraine. He was involved in this. Mike Pompeo is heavily involved. We don't know what his conversations were like. Plus, there are lots of officials who aren't really household names at at the Defense Department, the Energy Department, Office of Management and Budget, who know some things about the machinations here, presumably, but we haven't heard from. And, you know, I should say I published this story on the 20th and on the 21st, the New York Times publishes a story helpfully demonstrating my thesis, giving us new details about when the hold on aid to Ukraine came down. So they say that at 90 minutes after this phone call with Zelensky, this hold was, was announced internally. That's something that's brand new information, and we still don't really understand why that happened or, or you know, what the vector was, but we now know that it happened. Right. So there's a, there's a lot. The one thing that I would say, particularly when it comes to Fruman and Parnas, is, you know, in the immortal words of Hal Holbrook, follow the money. You know, the money part of this, uh, I think, is a bigger story than what we know so far. I mean, I don't know how much it affects President Trump, but there's a way in which people are seeing the all these incredible natural resources deals that can be made in Ukraine uh, and, and are regarding them with great interest. Okay, let's sort of shift gears here. You've written so much about this, and it's all so interesting. I mean, one of the things that America basically had almost no time to absorb, I mean, it's happening very fast. People are running around doing their holiday shopping. And in the middle of all that, the president of the United States gets impeached. 
And <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, it, it, uh, it, it triggered immediately a conversation. Well, he's probably not going to get removed in, by the Senate. And in a way, you can almost make the mistake of skipping over the fact that the president has been impeached. Yeah. And I think because people have been sort of expecting this since, I don't know, you know, October, September mm-hmm. or I don't know, 2017, <laughs> it has become a little bit entrenched. Mm-hmm. But that's a huge deal. And I, I do think that just the, the historic nature of that has been missed a little bit. Right. I mean, it, it is it's hard to to know how history is going to look at something when you're living through it at the moment. But there's a way in which being impeached is inarguably a stain that history will record and probably wind up recording in a kind of passive default way, like Trump will become, with each passing year, one of those guys who got impeached. Right. I mean, how many people can tell you the specifics of Andrew Johnson's impeachment? Not a whole lot who are not you know, paid historians, but people know that he got impeached. And I think that sticks in the historical record pretty clearly. Right. Although in the case of Andrew Johnson, the more you know about the details, the worse (laughs) it gets. That's true. (laughs) It's not one of those stories where if only you really understood the nuances here, you understand how completely forgivable all this was. No, it it is absolutely worse. Well, we wanted to spend some time talking about one of the things you've written about, which is you know, how the country processes all this, because just in the same sense that, yes, the president got impeached, we almost took that for granted, we talked about it long enough, and and just in the information environment we have these days, things don't bloom up into quite as big flowers as maybe they did 25 years ago. There's also a way in which you can sort of lose track of how Americans have regarded all of this stuff as a matter of public opinion. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're thinking about that right now. Well, I mean, I think the fact that it is fairly popular and remains fairly popular has gone a little underappreciated. And popular is obviously relative. But we're looking at consistently like a slim majority or a a slim plurality of the population supports impeachment and removal. And that's huge. And I don't think that is totally considered. And partly this feeds into the whole sort of Trump's super stable approval, disapproval rating. It's the same kind of thing. But we've never seen that kind of support consistently. We saw it in the last days of Nixon's impeachment, but we never saw anything like that, for example, in the case of Clinton. And Clinton administration veterans will tell you that they did polling that found that people are just instinctively opposed to the idea of removing the president. They see it as sort of undemocratic in the way that Trump allies have been talking. And so to see this many people consistently saying that, you know, Trump should have been impeached and, and should be removed, I think is pretty significant. But I mean, the, the differences here also are, and you alluded to them, well, we have to once again throw Andrew Johnson out of the mix. There wasn't a lot of polling <laughs> then. Everybody hated him and he hated everybody else anyway. Probably not a good index for comparison. But in the case of Nixon, Nixon has won a landslide 49 state election at the time we're heading into his impeachment season. Clinton is peaking in popularity as he heads into impeachment. And actually, his his approval or favorability rating actually went up after impeachment. He's benefiting from all kinds of different factors here. This, as you're saying, is a different kettle of fish. This guy's underwater, and he's been underwater. I mean, I think as of today in the 538 composites, it's 52.5 disapprove, 42.9 approve. So he's roughly 10 points underwater and has been almost since he got sworn in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's since February or March, maybe, of 2017. So I I think that is a it's a weird dynamic. We just see the polarization playing into this. So I mentioned the Nixon case. Support for Nixon's impeachment is fairly high, pretty equivalent to what we see now in the last days before he resigns. But his approval rating was much lower and it had been much higher. So 
you just see the population is much more persuadable. We don't see those kind of shifts going on anywhere with, I think, the rare exception of, you know, before the Ukraine impeachment inquiry, support for impeaching Trump was in the, you know, 35, 40 percent range. After it was announced, it suddenly popped up to this 48 to 50. And that's the only big shift that I can think of we've seen since, again, like March 2017 in how people think about Trump. Yeah, I think about this stuff. I sort of back the truck all the way up to the election. I mean, you know, when people want to talk about the 2016 election, I always say, look, there were two candidates, each of whom had the worst net approval rating, the worst net negative approval rating in the history of party nominees for the presidential office. Each of them for their party had the worst net approval ratings. And one of them won the Electoral College and the other one won the popular vote. And when you think about it that way, you realize there's a lot of people who are voting against the other candidate, maybe more than they're voting for the candidate they voted for. You know, it's save us from Clinton, save us from Trump. So there's a way in which, yeah, people don't like the destabilization implicit in a removal from office via impeachment. But they may, David, they may think about it a little bit differently this time around. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, your point on the 2016 election, you saw people saying, you know, that they thought Trump didn't have the temperament to be president and that they supported him. So there's all these interesting breaks where people are just so negatively polarized more than they are fans of people. You know, there is a sort of popularity among Trump and Trump's banking on the idea that impeachment will really rile up his base and rally those people toward him. And I think there may be something to that, but it also seems to be riling up people who oppose him. And there are more of them. Right. So the current, once again, I'm using 538's numbers here, and they aggregate. So their current number is 47.6 support impeachment, 46.1 don't support. And as you're saying, you know, if you look at the history, what little history there is of this, it usually takes quite a long time for that amount of support for impeachment and removal to build up to be that high. And this does kind of seem almost like a precipitate from the approval ratings themselves. I guess the the open question is, what does this mean for everybody else who runs for office? So the the whole idea of this, the narrative has been, well, the Democratic Party, they, they if they were going to do this, they wanted to get it over with fast. There were a couple of reasons for that. One of them was the actual danger they say that President Trump poses for the integrity of the 2020 elections, but also this sense that they didn't want it being an ongoing narrative while some of their more vulnerable candidates for House and Senate were running for office. Although one thing you hear about less is to what degree this is a stain that attaches itself to Republicans who also are running in purple states and who also are going to carry some of that baggage into battle. And I don't know that we necessarily know. David, is it probably going to be more on a race by race basis how that plays out? I think that's right. You know, there's a little bit of polling that suggests that Democrats in these tough sort of Trump favoring districts are disadvantaged by impeachment. But it's not a whole lot of polling, and it's a long way out. And these things seem so unpredictable. Like, I think the Clinton impeachment becomes, because there's polling data on it, unlike, and there's such a small data set, it becomes the the dominant one. But people overlearn the lesson of 1998, where impeachment was really bad for Republicans. And they also are considering that an environment where impeachment was much less popular overall. And I think they maybe underestimate the way that impeachment hurt Democrats in 2000. We don't have a control, obviously, so it's a little bit of a guess, but it does seem like it was maybe a drag on Democrats who were running in the wake of Clinton. So, you know, I'm, I'm just really hesitant to believe any confident predictions about what impeachment will mean in 2020 for people who are on the ballot lower. 
Yeah. One thing that sort of came up on our show last week, I was talking to John Harris from Politico, and he had he was out in L.A. for those debates out there, and he just run into Bob Shrum, the, a longtime Democratic political consultant, who talked about, and I hadn't really thought about it this way, but he talked about 2000 and about Clinton fatigue. You know, that there was one of the things that his polling told him was that although Bill Clinton was, you know, a very popular president through those last couple of years of his time, the country was exhausted. You know, one of the reasons they didn't want Clinton out there campaigning for Gore or much of anybody else was this sense of, no, go away. (laughs) We we just nobody wants to just deal with you and have those memories anymore. And I do when I think about all that, you just sort of think about, well, this is a very different situation because Bill Clinton and Dick Nixon were not seeking second terms. This is going to be unprecedented and really be worthy of study and scrutiny. I mean, not only do you have whatever residual effect there is on House and Senate elections, you've got the guy himself, you know, unless he's removed or unless he steps down or something weird happens, he's going to be running too. And we don't really have a way of even thinking about that based on history. That's right. There's no precedent for that at all. And there's such a little data set already. It's really interesting and and very strange. But I do think There is a way, I mean, it's hard to understand. First of all, we should say one difference to me between Trump and Clinton is Clinton had an understanding of the kind of kabuki theater of American politics in situations like this. Either that or he genuinely was remorseful. I have no idea whether it was real or a mess. But he didn't know how to act with remorse. I keep coming back to that. He apologized to the nation. You know, he gathered pastors around him to talk about how did he just turn into such a terrible person that he did these things. You know, and Trump has been basically kind of, you know, like it, up yours. You know, I mean, (laughs) he doesn't really have any capacity to do anything like that. And you do wonder, he's just unwilling to do anything that might take the curse off this thing other than to deny that it matters. And you wonder whether he could help himself in public opinion, if he could get his numbers up a little bit, if he would put this in some kind of perspective. And I would think so. There are all these places where, you know, Trump has this narrow margin and he won with, you know, as you said, with a minority of the popular vote, but with this narrow margin. And it seems like by reaching out a little bit to people on the center, he could really make some gains and put himself in a strong position. And this has been true on a lot of things. There's all these places where he could go a little bit over to the center without really dropping a lot of his support. And he seems unwilling to do that. And this is the latest example of this, because I do think impeachment is popular, but only by a narrow margin. And I, people are, are maybe movable on it. But he just won't take those steps. And uh, it seems like a a kind of all of impeachment is a sort of self-inflicted wound. But refusing to even give a I'm sorry you're offended sort of answer seems like just making the the self-inflicted wound worse. That was David A. Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic. He joined us by the miracle of Skype. After a break, Jennifer Hurt from Yale Divinity School. Welcome back. This is Pardon Me. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is a weekly show we do for as long as the quote-unquote impeachment season lasts. One of the things that on Pardon Me we really wanted to do from the get-go was to talk not just about politics, not just about law, 
not just about public perception, but also about just actual moral considerations or considerations that might be expressed in religious ethics as we go through this time. Because so much of a process like this one is ultimately about right and wrong, or so one might think anyway. And I knew right away who I wanted to talk to because I have had a chance to work with her before. Jennifer Hurt, who is Gilbert Stark Professor of Christian Ethics at Yale Divinity School, is with us now. You know, Jennifer, I think I'm going to start by playing you two clips and we can sort of comment on them a little bit. In 1998, when Bill Clinton was being impeached and his moral turpitude had been brought to light, one of the first things he did actually was to kind of publicly recruit three pastors who he would be meeting with on a regular basis because he understood that the moral questions here were important to play out in a public way. So here he is, I think about a year later, at the National Prayer Breakfast. I have been profoundly moved, as few people have, by the pure power of grace, unmerited forgiveness through grace. It's interesting, Jennifer, because he does he does speak in very moral language there, right? Yes, absolutely. And religious language. The language of grace is certainly religious language. And I wonder if this is partly because unlike really any of the other three kind of impeachment seasons that we've been through, Johnson, Nixon, and now Trump, this one had such a strong component of personal morals. Is that why do you think that he winds up using such religious language? Yeah, I do think that particular scenario lent itself to this because it could be framed as a merely personal issue and not as a political issue. And so in some ways, making it a religious issue probably fed into that framing of it. Yeah, I think that's true. I think maybe now it's time to turn to the rather unique cast that Donald Trump puts on his relationship with the divinity. I think this is actually when he's still running for president that he has this conversation with Jake Tapper, although I don't think he would alter any of his words today. Months ago, when you said that you've never asked God for forgiveness, Do you regret making that remark? No, I have great relationship with God. I have great relationship with uh, the evangelicals. In fact, nationwide, I'm I'm up by a lot. I'm leading everybody. But I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try and do nothing that's bad. So Jennifer, I mean, and I want to get into some of your thinking about kind of how he plays out moral questions. But he begins in a place that would be, I think, difficult for most professing Christians to recognize. The notion that we don't all need grace, that we don't all have such dire flaws that at times we will seek forgiveness. Absolutely. That's a fairly basic Christian confession that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are in need of forgiveness. So it's quite astonishing to hear someone say such a thing. So Donald Trump has always spoken, however, in pretty stark moral language, but it's sort of the moral language, I think uh, you've referred to it as kind of a friend-enemy dichotomy. Tell us more about that. The phrase friend-enemy distinction, it actually comes from the uh, German political theologian, Carl Schmitt. And he thought that in particular in a secular society, you needed to give people something greater than themselves to look up to, to live for, and that you were gonna generate social solidarity precisely by emphasizing, look, we're in it together, we have this common enemy. And so that without an enemy, he thought you weren't gonna be able to hold society together. 
to me, this is so illuminating of Trump's politics. From the get-go, Trump has been about policing the border, defining who's in and who's out, finding both external scapegoats and internal scapegoats, and that's bound up for him with what it means to make America great again. So you're, you're generating social solidarity in a particular group by defining who the enemy is going to be. And I think it has worked very well in his base to generate a very strong sense of national pride. I think also one of the things that he correctly identified was that there were a group of Christian evangelical leaders who were willing to look past his own moral deficiencies while pursuing what they see as greater interests. And because he's fundamentally a deal maker, his big question about them seemed to be, so what do they want? They want Planned Parenthood to be held in check. They want prayer in schools. They want an affirmation of the ideas contained in the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, that notion that if you're a believer, that you can still live out your beliefs even if they defy existing laws. And it seemed in 2015, 2016, and into his presidency that he would continually turn to them and say, that's what you want, right? And in a way, it seems to be a bargain or a deal that has kept both sides pretty happy so far. That's absolutely right. I mean, I think we do need to remind ourselves that those many, many evangelical supporters of Trump, initially, they were holding their nose when they voted in favor of him. That is, they, they really thought that there was something that was critically important to them that he was going to deliver on. And they weren't on board with everything that he was saying and doing. But there is a bit of a tendency once you've gotten on board to rationalize mm -hmm. other things in order to, to be able to live with the decisions that you've made. And I think that's a dangerous dynamic. It's a dangerous dynamic, but I think it's an understandable one to a certain degree, too. I mean, I think all of us at various times in our lives have made similar moral compromises. So, for example, if you are in the pro-life camp, if you regard abortion as tantamount to murder, you're probably willing to put up with a lot to get somebody who will take your side and who will appoint judges who will take your side. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of stretching, I don't think, to say, well, that moral question is just a lot bigger than whether this guy is a reprobate. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And it's something we should be reminding ourselves of. I mean, in some sense, what I worry about the most is this demonization of one's opponents. And what you've just suggested is a path to empathy with them, um, you know, a way for progressives, say, to be able to empathize with those for whom the pro-life issue is, is so important that various other things will be put up with. I mean, in a democracy, we're not all going to agree, and we, <laughs> we're going to live by the outcome of votes. And we don't need to demonize the people that have voted against us. We just need to be committed to living together and to accepting the outcome of the vote until we have a chance to take another vote, right? We can keep working to change people's ideas, but that's not the same as demonizing them to the point of political breakdown. Right. And, you know, just to get back to that friend-enemy distinction, it seems to me that in other political eras that I've lived through, it would be clear right now that, for example, Russia is kind of our enemy, that they want to interfere in our elections. It's pretty clear that Putin sees the undermining of American democracy as something that would really help him a lot. And oddly enough, I mean, the friend-enemy distinction seems these days to be more vividly internal, that the people you really dislike and distrust are your neighbors from a different political party, and we can sort of park this Russia thing for some future discussion. I mean, it's sort of odd the way it, it hasn't unified us. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting. So Trump has used 
the immigrants at the borders as an enemy. It was kind of a, an odd move. I mean, given that we really depend on that labor and those people have been making great contributions to our society. But he's been very successful at configuring them as a threat. You know, clearly he's taking advantage of a sense of dislocation that's come for many American workers due to forces of globalization. You know, I think we need to take those experiences very seriously and try to understand why it's made many people vulnerable to this pitch that configures um, those south of the border as our enemy, rather than configuring something like Russia as our enemy. So here we are at this moment, and it's intrinsically, it's inherently divisive, I mean, to go through an impeachment. But it seems as though we don't have habits of the heart that point us in the direction of any kind of common understanding. I don't know. I was even you know, reading Al Franken's most recent book. He described coming into the Senate as a rookie senator and that he and one or two other Democrats who were new and an equal number of Republicans fell into the habit of going out to dinner with their spouses, all of them, you know, and just talking about other stuff besides politics. And it sounds like the opposite of what we're doing right now. Our habits of the heart don't seem to have much room or make much room for the other belief system. Absolutely. And it's not just our habits of our hearts, it's sort of our institutional structures. I've been struck by the research of the psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who talks about the ways, as you've said, the ways in which members of Congress used to socialize across the aisle. And now they don't live in D.C., they live back in their home districts. And they they don't socialize with one another. They don't really have any uh, relationships outside of the spheres in which they're combating one another. And we all live that out in our own in our own ways, that more and more our neighborhoods are not politically diverse. And we apparently like it that way. But I think it really hobbles our capacity. I was heartened by hearing Alyssa Slotkin's comments from Michigan's 8th District Congresswoman, who is, is one of these uh, Democrats in a you know, heavily Republican area. While we may not agree, I I hope you believe me when I tell you that I made this decision out of principle and out of a duty to protect and defend the Constitution. I feel that in my bones, and I will stick to that regardless of what it does to me politically, because this is bigger than politics. I thought they were more credible because of the fact that she is a member of this bipartisan caucus problem solvers group that seems to be a faint glimmer of bipartisanship in current Congress, but it doesn't seem to be much like it going on right now. It's kind of interesting how little moral language you hear. I mean, you're at Yale Divinity School. Maybe you hear it all the time. But I'm, for the most part, watching the hearings, watching what goes on in the press. It's mostly sort of structural, procedural. You know, does this rise to the level of impeachment? Is this, you know, an effort to overturn a previous election? Is this, I mean, it, it seems as though maybe we're less and less comfortable, at least a lot of us, using moral language to talk about these things. I mean, that could be. I mean, it could also be that, It's not effective in in the face of the phenomenon of Trump. He's been very upfront about many of the things that he's done. And one goes from sort of shock to numbness on it. Mm -hmm. 
You know, as somebody who looks at political theology, you're in a unique position to kind of maybe talk about how it evolves in American public discourse. So, and this is a vast oversimplification, but once again, being really old, I mean, I lived through the activism of the Berrigans. I was on the Yale campus at the time. It's kind of the tail end of the William Sloan Coffin era. And not to say that there aren't activists these days and activists within the more liberal wing of Christianity, but I feel like that that isn't, I mean, maybe in the areas like climate change and, and immigration, maybe there is some activism. But once again, I don't know. Is there that same kind of feeling that religion and morality and policy are all inextricably intertwined? You know, I probably have a skewed perspective on this, given that I am at Yale Divinity yes. School. But I see so much faith-related activism in my corner, certainly students involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, climate activism, immigration. In terms of the broader national scene, certainly I, you know, I think I had this glimmer of hope at the beginning of the Obama era that, you know, speaking as a progressive, the hoping that progressives were finding their religious voice again. And, you know, I don't think that played out. That is, I, I don't think that was sustained. And it's not completely clear to me why not? I mean, that is, I think that there are certain spheres within which progressive faith activism is alive and well and creative and, and flourishing and so on. But it does not seem to be able to break out into the public discourse very effectively. So last thing, Jennifer Hurt. This process of impeachment, anyway, is going to end at some point. It's going to end sometime days, weeks after the trial in the Senate. We'll start thinking and talking about something else. But, you know, there's just kind of a sense that nerves have been laid bare, that there are these red raw nerves that have come to the surface during the hearings, that people are arguing in ways that are harder to patch up afterwards. And I'm wondering, I mean, you know, as somebody who sort of looks at that, how we build community, how we, how we get that ability to talk to one another, how we live with our differences without minimizing those differences but also without maximizing them to the point where we can't live with each other. I mean, are there any helpful prescriptions for March and April and May of 2020? <laughs> well, so let's hope so. Let's hope so. So, but, I mean, Buddhists talk about compassion meditation. I think compassion meditation is a practice we could all do well to adopt, where you actually think positive, empathetic thoughts about your opponents, and Christians certainly have their own versions of that. Praying for your enemies is not to be overstated in its power. I think we need to find something greater than party and greater than nation to live for, and maybe remind ourselves of some of the most basic common human things that we share with one another in the midst of, you know, what's going to be deep disagreement. That was Jennifer Hurt. We're going to take a break here. We're going to come back with Peter Sokolowski from Merriam-Webster to talk about the way language is changing because of the impeachment. We're also going to introduce a brand new feature called Factoids featuring the wonderful Kion Wolf.
Okay, we're going to introduce a new feature here on Pardon Me. By the way, this is Colin McEnroe. And, you know, every week there's stuff that happens, and every couple of centuries there's stuff that happens, and all of it's kind of interesting, but we can't do whole shows about all of it. So we have developed this idea called Factoids, and here to present it is the wonderful Kyone Wolf. In the past five years, Brazil, Guatemala, and South Korea have all impeached their presidents. Two of those three presidents were women. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is a former actor who starred in Servant of the People, a TV series about a high school teacher who unexpectedly becomes president of Ukraine. Last week, House Counsel Douglas Letter said in a filing in federal court that a second impeachment could be necessary if the House uncovers new evidence that Trump attempted to obstruct investigations of his conduct. Letter is said to average four hours of sleep per night. Meanwhile, Connecticut U.S. Attorney John Durham, currently investigating the origins of the Russian probe, often wears mismatched suit jackets and suit pants because he rises early and dresses in the dark. Samuel Chase, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was impeached in 1804. President Thomas Jefferson was the driving force behind the impeachment. The Senate trial of Chase took place almost a year later, with Aaron Burr presiding while under indictment for murder, Chase was acquitted. White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney did not know that President William Howard Taft also served as Chief Justice. The Huffington Post found what appear to be records of Mulvaney's participation in an invitation-only online trivia league. Mulvaney did know that, according to Ariana Grande, God is a woman. You've been listening to Factoids on Pardon Me. I'm Kyone Wolf. So, as I might have mentioned before, I'm old enough to be a three-peacher, which is a term I'm going to try to get our guest Peter Sokolowski to put on his site. It's if you're old enough to remember the Nixon impeachment and to have covered the Clinton impeachment and then this impeachment, you're a three-peacher. And what I really remember was how much Watergate changed the language. I mean, Deep Six, Stonewall, Smoking Gun. I think it might have been the first time that people talked you know, in a, at least a fairly common widespread way, but the laundering of money. So anyway, there were, there was all there were all these language changes. And I think anytime the whole nation is focused on something, you get that. So we've uh, asked our favorite lexicographer, a good friend of the show, Peter Sokolowski, who's editor at large, Merriam-Webster. Welcome back to our show, Peter. It's great to be with you. Great to hear your voice. All right. So the word of the year was they, but there were quite a few words and phrases that did seem to be kind of impeachment driven. We could start with quid pro quo, which is, you know, certainly a term that lots of people have used in lots of contexts for years and years. However, because of people like you, Peter, I learned something, which was if you had asked me prior to this particular iteration of quid pro quo where it came from, I would say that Cicero would be a really good bet because Cicero is a really good bet for almost any phrase that's kind of legalistic or government-oriented that's Latin that's worked its way into the language. But here, quid pro quo, using it the way we use it now is a, a much more recent thing than, I mean, Cicero would not have known what we were talking about if we tried to use it the way we've been using it lately. You know, that's an amazing part of language. It's true because Latin is an ancient language. But anyway, this is Latin from far past the end of the Roman Empire. What we 
we call New Latin is the Latin that's used mostly by scientists to name flowers and, and stars. Mm-hmm. And so it's using Latin words, using Latin parts to uh, create meanings that are contemporary. And in this case, like so much of our language about law, our legal language derives mostly from French, and Norman French, of course, derives directly from Latin. So there's a Latinate base to almost all of legal language, including the word legal, the word language, but certainly the words, uh, you know, arraignment and indictment and impeach and judge and jury and all the rest of it. And that's really, that's because of a little, you know, phenomenon in human history that the when the Normans conquered uh, Britain, uh, they imposed their system of laws on the Anglo-Saxon people. And that's why we use a Latin vocabulary to describe the laws and the governmental systems in the English language. It's kind of an interesting mix of cultures. Quid pro quo, basically, we're talking about around the 16th century when this term came into use in this legal sense. And it's interesting for me to because I've been watching these lookups in our data since, I don't know, around 2002 or so, when a legal term has a real specificity, a word like admonish, for example, when it's used in the Congress, when it seems to mean something really specific, that's when people go to the dictionary. And quid pro quo, of course, is not a term most people use every day. And so quid pro quo at one point seemed to mean, you know how you go to the a restaurant and the menu will say no substitutions? <laughs> yes, well, right. well, for a while, quid pro quo was a substitution. It might be, you know, Romeo and Juliet running off to the apothecary <laughs> and he doesn't have the thing they're asking for. So he gives them a quid pro quo. He gives them something that either might be pretty much the same thing they're asking for, or maybe it isn't, and that's a problem. But that would have been a more common usage of that term, probably leading up to the change you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So this for that, basically, originally. And then now the way we use it is something for something, and that is, you know, something of value in return for, you know, for a favor or for whatever action is done. And it's true that it moved from that apothecary use to this more generalized use, but it has this, again, this legal aspect. And that sent a lot of people to the dictionary. It's just like what you said about Watergate. Not only is the country getting a civics lesson, we're getting a vocabulary lesson. Right. And, you know, there are ways in which common vocabulary words then acquire specificity at specific moments. And I would say that's kind of the story with impeach. I mean, impeach, if you think about it, like one place in conversation it might turn up in an ordinary year is, well, that he has he's a person of unimpeachable character. Now, when they say that, they're not referring to the idea that you couldn't remove him from office by a two thirds vote of the Senate. They're they're using impeach in its much more day to day, year to year sense. Right. Absolutely. I mean, this is a word that means irreproachable in that sense, you know, Mm -hmm. someone whose virtue is beyond doubt. And this is an interesting word that comes from the French. And if you know modern French, empêcher is simply the word that means to impede or to stop. It has the same exact Latin root as the English word impede. So literally, impeach means impede. It just means to halt, to stop, to bring to a stop in a literal sense. And that's an interesting point about this word in particular, which is that many people, if you learn this word just by usage, just by seeing it in the headlines, just by hearing it in the NPR headline news, for example, you might think that it meant to remove from office, but it doesn't. You know, it, it, that's not what it actually means. It simply means to charge with a crime, you know, and or to charge especially a public official with 
a misconduct. And that's different from removal. And the thing is, they've kind of been collapsed. And I think this is parallel to the fact that many people consider Nixon to have been impeached, whereas that's just a technicality. Of course, he actually wasn't because he resigned before that could happen. It's a really good point that if people understood the word better in the first place, they probably wouldn't have done that accidental collapsing of the two concepts. The impeaching is effectively to introduce a series of charges against a person's character or behavior, you know, and then the trial and the either acquittal or removal is separate. Well, if you understood what impeach was in the first place, it would be easier to maintain that distinction. And it's really hard to, you know, I mean, in this case, this is a case where the uh, etymological meaning of the word is actually closer to the legal meaning, to the way it's being used by the newsmakers. And yet it's being, I think, interpreted by so many in this much broader sense and much more final, you know, to remove from office kind of sense. And that does add to the confusion and the tension around the moment. So one of the things that I think that you experience as a lexicographer is that when the stakes of what a word mean rise, then people really want to know what the word means. So, for example, in, in his July testimony, Robert Mueller said the president was not exculpated for the acts that he allegedly committed. And you had a 23,000 <laughs> percent increase in lookups. So talk a little bit about that word and why, well, why are people looking it up? First of all, he presented himself in a, with a very technical kind of legalistic language. And that's what this word is. Mm. It's not a word, again, not a word that we use every day. It's got, you know, an important root, you know, culpa, meaning to blame or meaning blame, I should say, in Latin. And that's the root of our word culpable, which, again, is this other sort of interesting Latin word. It's funny that we have so many Anglo-Saxon words and Latin words that are kind of parallel in meaning, that sort of overlap in meaning, like guilt. We've got this idea of guilt, which is an old English word, and then culpable, which immediately brings to mind a courtroom you know, <laughs> or a legal kind of language. And there are so many of these doublets, and this is just a kind of parenthesis, but we think of these doublets in English common law that have come down to us that are doubled for this reason, because they include words that have both Anglo-Saxon and Latin roots. So think of crimes and misdemeanors, breaking and entering, and even salaries and emoluments. They're, these are these are legalistic doublets that were done because most of the written legal language was this Latin-based language, and most of the common language that would be understood every day by people was the Old English. And it's just interesting that English has absorbed these you know kind of double words in so many cases. But exculpate to remove guilt, basically. Ex means to remove, and culpa guilt. Right. And I would say also that in the case of some Latin words, probably certain, especially Latin words associated with guilt, there's also the crossover into church Latin. So oh, yeah. uh, obviously mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Perfect. So yeah, if you brought up Catholic, you already know pretty much what the root is. You might even be able to figure out what exculpate means. It's really interesting to think how much is lost by having no Latin in our daily lives. For me, French was sort of my poor man's Latin because most of those words have the same roots and they help explains so much about English. It's just interesting how you get this extra dimension about the language when you have a background in in the classical languages. Right. But let's take another Latinate word, because I think this is an interesting one, because even though it would be a word that I would be comfortable using, as I think about it now and I see the work that you guys have done on it, I realize I maybe didn't 100% understand it. And that's the word insidious. So Gordon Sondland used it in his testimony to describe President Trump's attempts to coerce Ukraine into investigation 
investigating the Bidens, and he described that as insidious. Mm. So that, that has a specific meaning, and it, its meaning is pinned to its Latin origin. Yeah, I mean, this idea of awaiting a chance to entrap somebody, you know, that you're kind of ambushing, which is the Latin, you know, the Latin root means to ambush. And in this case, of course, it's more figurative than literal. We're talking about something that sort of sneaks into a situation, which is the medical sense when you think of an insidious infection, for example, that is something that came in along with you know, some other treatment. And I think in this case, because it was cued by the Sondland testimony, it proves to us really how much people are paying attention to uh, this process. We see the lookups that reflect the impeachment inquiry and the hearings and then the vote. And it actually is a really good feeling from my perspective, because I think people are using the dictionary more now than ever. So, yeah, and I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think also there's, you know, we've talked about this before, kind of in, in the Orwell sense, if you understand the way that the word is being used or misused, you understand a lot more about the situation. And the person who controls the meanings of words often get an exercise control over, over how we interpret situations. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that gets kind of to the heart of where we are. I mean, I think we are living in a moment with a kind of crisis of meaning. And the crisis of meaning goes back to ideas of fake news or alternative facts and two sides that are sort of talking past each other. I like to think of the dictionary as maybe the greatest evidence of human consensus that, <laughs> that we have. And what I mean by that is that millions of people over a thousand years have decided that a certain sequence of sounds mean a very particular thing and it allows us to speak to strangers. And that's the most basic level of language. And so the consensus, the evidence of that consensus is what we present in the dictionary. That is to say, most people use this word to mean this particular thing. And if we don't agree on that basic meaning, getting to your point, if we don't actually on both sides agree on the basic premise of the basic words that we use, then the tools that we're using will, will never work to connect us. And, and that, that's a really important factor. I just want to say, Peter, you clearly never met my parents who used to actually have fights about what was in the dictionary. <laughs> like they'd read the dictionary entry and then they'd fight about that. All right. So one last thing, I think it was during the judiciary testimony, things got a little animalistic. First of all, you had people complaining about other people badgering the witness. But <laughs> I'm not going to ask you about that one. I'm going to ask you about subsequently, there were claims that this was a kangaroo court. Yeah. Uh, so we get the badgers, we get the kangaroos. I mean, who knows what could happen? They could start fighting each other. And I've never really quite understood where that term comes from. I know what its connotations are. I know what it's loaded up with. But maybe nobody apparently knows what where a kangaroo court comes from. Yeah, this is one of those. It's, it's kind of a mystery. I and mean, you'd think it maybe goes back to Australia in some way. And of course, the animal does. What we can prove is that in the United States, it goes back to that time around the California gold rush. And really, the, the issue in some way has to do with the fact that those territories were not states yet in, in many cases. And so there wasn't an official court. There wasn't a real authority. And if you've ever seen Deadwood, you know that that was a major plot point is that um, becoming a territory and then a state would have very specific sort of bureaucratic and legal ramifications. So the fact is when you wanted some kind of legal redress, for example, your claim, your claim to a piece of land that you were mining, it would be very difficult to have an official government court, a federal court, for example, 
And that's when this term began to be used. That's when we have the first written evidence of it. So kangaroo court was used for this unofficial, maybe disreputable kind of legal or parallel to legal system. And, uh, you know, there are so many mysteries to the English language. A lot of people think language is like math that will always know the ultimate origin, especially after talking about Latin as the building block language for so much of legal language in English. It's interesting to think of so many other terms that we just we just don't know. They're lost to the mists of time. So that was Peter Sokolowski, lexicographer and friend of the show and editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster. That's our show for the week. Pardon me. I'm Colin McEnroe. It was produced by Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants. We're at Connecticut Public Radio at noon on Saturdays on your favorite podcast place all the time, where we also will post fun extras and things like, well, for instance, a much longer version of the Peter Sokolowski interview that you just heard, except you didn't hear the stuff that we didn't get you because we're going to give you the longer version. You follow me, right? Okay. Anyway, Happy New Year. It's probably not going to be that happy for a while, but we'll try to have as much fun as we can along the harrowing journey.